You know, getting ready to start the Concrete Conservative. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock, with Victorious Ed Vidal, who doesn't want to be called Victorious. What should I call him? A loser, Ed Vidal? No. <laughs> Ed Vidal is so valuable to me, it's not even funny as executive producer. He is the Concrete, in, and I am the Conservative. So you know what? I want to read something to you that that is was written in the, in the late 1800s about the media. It's the saddest thing in the world. But before I do that, I want Ed to tell us what kind of show we're going to have today. Well, today in the Concrete Conservative, 94.5 FM in Key Biscayne, we'll spend the first hour discussing urban issues, especially the city of Chicago. Uh, Which is the, your birthplace? No, no, no oh, that's no, where it's... I grew up. I lived for 20 years there, went to college, law school, worked there uh, from 66 to 86. And... The there there are several. I mean, I, but I already knew you were a spick from Cuba, right? Yeah, yes, they, yes. And you, how many times did they send you home in your banana boat? I had an argument the other day. Hey, go fix Cuba! <laughs> so by some liberal blasting me on John Facebook. John Kennedy screwed it up. And I said, "Why would I fix Cuba? I was born here. You know, fix Cuba. Cuba fixed America. Denied its manifest destiny. Remember." Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know it's holding true as more and more if I say it. Well, yes. we got to bring back the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, how about just the Platt Amendment? That would have been just fine. Well, nobody knows what the Platt Amendment is. So well, why don't you it. tell us, man? No, I don't know what it is. Oh, my God. But anyway, we're going to focus on urban issues starting with the city of Chicago. They just had elections. They elected a uh, new mayor and some new members of the city council. They also have been playing fast and loose with the rule of law. Did you law. say the first lesbian mayor? No, the, Houston had a lesbian mayor, so that's not a big deal. It I don't think it's a big deal either, but I think African, it's a it's a character it, it's a character trait. Lesbian mayor, yes. Okay. Uh, but so then then we have Mr. Smollett and the rule of law. Then we'll see. We if got we, Smollett calling. No, I don't, no, he wouldn't call. But and, uh, do we get a commission? We'll if we can comments. get him to, to pony up the hundred fifty grand. No, he he uh, he owes the city of Chicago one hundred thirty for the uh, investigation. <laughs> And then we'll see if we can get some um, some answers on where things stand with the Obama clubhouse, political clubhouse in the south side. It turns out that one of the foundations that funded the arts tower for uh, all the arts at the University of Chicago has given $100,000 to Friends of the Park, which is the group, the not-for-profit group, suing against... Oh, we've had this gentleman on yes, our air Herb before. Kaplan. We had Herb Kaplan. Yeah, Herb. He just got $100,000 from shut a... shut up? From, no, to, to support <laughs> his uh, litigation. No, so, it's Chicago's <laughs> litigation. No, he it's is, his. He's, part, he's one of the litigants in Friends of the Park. He's suing the city to stop the construction of the Obama political clubhouse on 20 acres of historic parkland. With a monument that looks like uh, it looks like a, 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 a Stalinist. Mos- it looks like a mosque. Mausoleum. Well, no, it's more Stalinist. Stalinist. You're, Stalinist. you're throwing him a pass. Yeah, uh, it's called brutal brutalist um, architecture from after World War II. Okay, I want to talk. I want to read an incredible quote that's in my book, The Fiscals. The Fiscals. Here we are. And guess what? I'm being interrupted by That's the right. first you, you caller. Can, you can do that afterwards. She's, I can do that afterwards. Let's hear. 605. Karen Levinson. Yes. L- no, Lederson. Lederson, yes. Is this Mrs. Lederson on WSQF 94.5 FM, the Concrete Conservative? Yeah, this is Carrie. Yes. 
Hi, Carrie. Thank you for calling. This is Ed Vidal. Hi. I want our get our uh, audience to know that you are a freelance journalist in Chicago, and you are connected with the Medill School of Journalism at uh, Northwestern University. Is that correct? Yeah, I teach there. So you've been uh, following all these stories. Chicago is quite a city, right? That's true. How long have you been working there? In Chicago, yep. uh, about twenty years. Oh, oh wow! Right. Are you uh, are, were you raised in in the area or no? No, I was raised in San Diego, but uh, I've been in uh, Chicago actually over twenty years now. So, yep. You want to get some good cold weather after all that all that bad weather in San Diego? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, you went from warm wind to a cold wind. Oh, my God. Yep. Yep. That's great. Well, thank you very much for calling. Uh, this week, there have been a lot of uh, new developments in Chicago, and I have about four uh, topics I was telling Manny I want to go through. But the first one is uh, the city elections. Uh, the uh, Chicago elected a new mayor. Some of you can tell us about that. She's a woman, African-American, lesbian. I lived in Houston for a while. We had a lesbian mayor. She was a terrible mayor there, but that's not because of that necessarily. Uh, and also the race was two African-American women, so that's interesting. But I also find that other other parts of the runoff election, uh, there's a 50-person uh, city council, and at, at least five of them are outright Democrat socialists. So wait, wait, how, tell us, did you say that again? How many city on there the city? are 50 aldermen in the city council, and five of them are outright members of the Democrat Socialists of America. Okay, but explain to our audience a city council with aldermen and how that well, plays itself out. Well, the city out. of Chicago is divided into 50 wards. Okay. Every ward has an alderman. And they are elected to the city council, and that's a lot. And you, get, you need to be good to your aldermen so that you get your garbage picked up and your snow plowed. Otherwise, so in other words, you might not. So the audience understands they're actually uh, legislating. Yes, city so legislators. A, uh, so it's like a parliament of 50 it's people. It's like a parliament of 50 people so in no a city. So no wonder nothing gets done. 2.7 million residents approximately. And uh, the, in fact, one alderman right now, Eddie Burke, is under indi federal indictment because he was extorting a uh, Burger King operator who wanted to get uh, build out his uh, store and had to get a building permit. Chicago, you need a lot of building permits. So uh, Eddie Burke suggested that if you want a building permit, well, he should hire his law firm downtown. So there's a lot of corruption that works that way. You need permits, you need this or that. And so that's how the corruption works in Chicago. Right, Carrie? summary the the aldermen i mean it's a city council like you know most uh, cities and towns i think have a city or town council and one of the interesting things is i you know things did get done under the old system of city council which is where everyone pretty much backed the mayor and um you mentioned that the socialists which is an interesting recent development but more generally city council in the past two elections has just gotten more independent and the aldermen are really um representing their wards more at least um claiming that they're going to right. so uh, Anyway, um, just to add on to your description. Okay. Great. Well, why don't you tell us about the mayor's race? That seems to be the biggest thing. Yeah. Well, it was it was pretty historic, as everyone's saying. It was two African American women against each other in a runoff after a primary. We have a nonpartisan primary where there was fourteen candidates, kind of across the. Um, socioeconomic spectrum. And the pretty notable thing about that was that all the candidates from a former police superintendent to um, top former <laughs> schools officials, um, uh, candidates, black, Latino, and white candidates were 
really all voicing pretty progressive opinions, um, and we're you know pretty much all saying things uh, counter uh, to what had seemed to be the status quo during the outgoing Mayor Rahm Emanuel's administration. Um, so you know it wasn't uh, necessarily about race at the election. I mean, race is always an issue in Chicago, but um, you know, contrary to what it might appear on the surface, it wasn't really so much about race, but just well, about people's what kind of progressive what kind well, of progressive yeah. what kind of progressive positions did they t- did they all kind of agree on maybe you can tell us two or three of them well crime wasn't one of them right? no no taxes <laughs> uh, the policing is a big issue we've had pretty high profile police scandals in Chicago so everyone ag- agreed on the need to reform the police department and to have more public accountability for the police and investment in neighborhoods pretty much everyone agreed that we have two cities with the small amount relatively small amount of haves and large amount of have nots and that we need to um, redistribute the way investment is handled in the city and investment and west sides how do you re- uh, redistribute investment? Right. Inve- how are you going to get investment to the south and west sides with the crime rate uh, that you have there? I mean, I spent seven years living in the south side during mm-hmm. college and law school, and you know that's it's a kind of a food desert because nobody wanted to put their food stores down there. And now Walmart, uh, Whole Foods has a couple of stores. But how are you going right. to how are you going to get investment into those neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, it's a vicious circle where investment in crime, you know, lower investment, more crime, the two go hand in hand. And the city really does direct investment with its tax increment financing zones and other city incentives. So the idea is, as with that Whole Foods, you you incentivize investment in those neighborhoods. And, you know, that's one piece of a long struggle to reduce the crime so that it mm-hmm. becomes more um, attractive for private investment. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing. So. I mean, when you think of Baltimore uh, having their their places looted, and some of the some of the private investment in Baltimore hasn't recovered no, from no, the '60s riots. Same thing in in Chicago. The West Side has not recovered from the riots in the '60s, and whole chunks of the South Side are just empty. Yeah, it's a, it's a really amazing because uh, you see the opposite happening here in Miami, where our downtown is being gentrified yeah. by high rise, luxury high rise apartment areas. People from all, all over the would world would never have invested in just just 15 years ago. Yep, especially with the old yeah, Miami. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's a, there's gentrification going on in South and West Side neighborhoods, and it's not, I mean, the crime rate is very high, but it doesn't mean that there's, you know, open mayhem in, in those neighborhoods. I mean, there are huge consumer bases in those neighborhoods, and there are vibrant small businesses that show that it is possible to um, increase investment and to have a, a thriving business climate in yeah. those areas. But we were talking about crime, and I was reading that this weekend 30 people were shot. This is the first warm weekend of the year, uh, and in Englewood, at some kind of party, there were eight people that were shot. What's going on? Well, that's, I mean, crime, but gun violence has been the big story in Chicago for a long time. And well, doesn't Chicago have really strict gun issue. laws? The, the, the main explanation out there is that what's happened with gangs is they've splintered, and, I mean, there's a lot of academic research on this that shows um, how 
things have happened with the gangs and with social media have fueled more violence, but, you know, the bigger issue, so that's no secret, and that's been an issue for a long time, um, but it's pretty universally agreed upon, you know, including among those 14 original mayoral candidates that the way to, uh, there's many ways that that needs to be addressed, but one of them is just investment in those neighborhoods mm. and improving the schools well, did, and resources to, you know, to help the great majority of people in those neighborhoods who aren't shooting and even the ones who are um, to just turn things around. What now, about, the, what, wait, wait, what about, there's one issue that I didn't hear discussed, and that is the issue of broken families. I was reading that 86% of the inner city children born last year in Cook County were born to unwed mothers. Did anybody address that? You know, that I mean, that's a trope that's been talked about for decades all across the U.S. and I think pretty widely addressed. And people aren't talking about that in Chicago because it's pretty, they're not talking about it in the way that, that you mean, the sort of blaming way, because it's just widely acknowledged here that that sort of blaming the family and, and you know, blaming the victim is not, that's not the cause of the problems. Um, there's countless stories of single parent families that are doing great and doing amazing things. And the story here, you know, from across, just about across the board, uh, which goes back to why we had the election results that we did, really everyone agrees it's been a disproportionate um, allocation of resources and of political power, you mm. know, over decades and really, um, really culminating within the last administration. Okay, you also talked about improving schools. I went through uh, fifth through eighth grade at Swift Public School on the north side. And I wonder why hasn't uh, why hasn't school choice had more of an inroad? Like in New York, I know there are a lot of charter schools. There's a lot of charter schools here. That's one of the big debates, actually. Um, and uh, there are a lot of charter schools, although a lot of um, reform advocates or you know a lot of people deeply involved in the system, and including actually the majority of parents, according to polls, don't want to see charter schools grow. They want to see the more investment in the public schools, and they want to see the public schools, the regular public schools, given the resources um, that they need to thrive. And Give me a break. <laughs> Do, do you have um, you mean more money into those uh, unionized government bureaucracies? <laughs> the, uh, I mean, the teachers' union is is powerful here, yeah. and I, I think for good reason. And um, the parents, you know, a lot of times there's this dialogue trying to pit parents against union teachers. But we had this teachers' strike in 2012, and various things since then, where um, you know, unbiased research and uh, elections have shown that parents support the teachers union and support the neighborhood schools that you know where the teachers are unionized and um the issue i mean the teachers union is begging for more money to be put into the schools but hasn't the number um i don't see how you can really argue with that i think it's pretty well known that more resources for schools and smaller class sizes means better outcomes but yeah wait time hasn't the number of people in the uh, of students gone way down yeah, yeah, and that's part of, again, this vicious cycle of lack of investment in the neighborhoods and families leaving Chicago. And so, you know, that's part of the problem, even with it's not, and as you know, education dollars are, are per student. So it's not like there's all this extra money because the numbers of students have gone way down. Um, if anything, that, that just makes the problem worse. So, you know, and we've had plenty of corruption, infamous corruption, even in, in just, you know, recent years in the past mm-hmm. administration and the schools. So that's a big issue, too. But that's not coming from the union. That's coming from the school's officials that have been appointed by the mayor. 
Yeah. Yeah. Of course, so, the uh, mayor sends his kids to uh, the lab schools at the University of Chicago. <laughs> well, that? well right? he's making a snarky comment now. When it when it comes when it comes to a, a state government that's got massive deficits, how much percentage of of people's real estate taxes in Illinois is actually going to public school system? Is it more than fifty percent, like in Florida? know off the top of my head and that's not that specifically isn't something i've reported on much but it's not um it's not an issue of i think it's pretty widely accepted it's not an issue of raising taxes necessarily there's um i mean there's ways that and there's a whole battle between chicago and illinois which came to a head when we had republican governor bruce rauner and democratic mayor yeah where his veto was overridden how much fee money goes to the chicago schools so there's all sorts of pieces to that formula yeah, there. So, are you a proponent for the status quo of how public schools are funded? Oh well, I, no, definitely not. But um, I just, uh, you know, personally, and I report on this. Um, you know, I, I don't. I'm not a, an op-ed person. I just report what's going on. But my personal opinion on schools, um, the status quo obviously isn't working. But um, you know, we've seen firsthand, and there's lots of great reporting and studies to back this up that charters and you know, so-called school choice haven't worked and aren't the solution, at least in Chicago. Now, do they are they are they obligated as they are in California to uh, to hire union teachers in, in choice schools? Yeah. No. Uh, no, no, that's no. part of the whole issue is that they're not unionized, and so they're getting people that are much less experienced and are paid much less, and there's higher turnover. So that's kind of a you know at the heart of the the uh, charter school and you know quote unquote school choice issue here, and that's I think one of the main reasons that people like Bruce Rauner and Ron Emanuel have pushed for those schools because um, they don't like unions and they you know they see that as a way to weaken the teachers' union. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. I have a, a considerable amount of experience here in my state uh, pushing for parent guardianship schools, uh, only I need to have it written that way in the law. Here, uh, I guess because uh, the uh, the unions are obviously just as strong, and we we spend the $9,300 a student here in Florida. Mm-hmm. How much do they spend in, in, in Illinois per student? I think it's less than that. Like I said, this isn't what I report on specifically, the, the numbers related to education, but I, I'm going to guess off the top of my head I feel like what I've seen is less than that. But, you know, it varies by county, and that's part of the whole that's part of the whole fight between Rauner and, and Rom over state and city dollars and whether state dollars, how much state dollars go to Chicago schools. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, it's a, yeah, I guess we just got to uh, yeah. get off that subject and yeah. on to another now, one. Well, Carrie, you, I think you made a good point uh, on these mayoral candidates uh, because I think one of the one of the issues here was that people want they went for Lori Lightfoot because they wanted an alternative to the uh, party. I mean, she won seventy percent in the runoff, and she was running off against an establishment candidate who was also the chairman of the Cook County. Democrat machine. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, uh, well, you you summed it up pretty well right there, but um, people have been frustrated, especially with this Ed Burke thing that you mentioned coming out right during the election cycle and some other 
um, the alderman of my neighborhood was caught up in that scandal. He was, or not caught up, he, you know, actively made himself part of that scandal. You mean, he was, was that Solis? Wire for the Solis? FBI. And um, so people were, you know, really disgusted with the status quo. And um, I think they also, um, Preckwinkle had a really negative campaign, which I think turned people off who might have considered supporting her otherwise. And, um, and, People, uh, Lori Lightfoot, you know, I think impressed a lot of people with just her, her obvious, um, you know, just seriousness and great intelligence. And um, she, uh, you know, a lot of liberals liked her and a lot of sort of more left activists hated her, which will be interesting to see that play out during her campaign. But, you know, I think um, for better or worse, people didn't see her as, uh, I mean, she put forth a lot of, you know, you could say progressive plans and platforms, but she was also backed by big finance people. And, you know, I think it was hard to pin her down politically, which for some was a negative, but I think a lot of people saw that as a, as a positive and um, wanted to give her a chance to see what she could do. Was she an, alder- was she an alderman? No, no. Was no, she? No. no. Was she? She, uh, ran- yeah. she? she didn't have a political office, but was she Ram Emanuel's candidate? No, no, she was, um, no, she was, she announced her candidacy while Rom was still in the race. She was okay. one of relatively few that did that, and she was hypercritical of Rom. Um, she has been for her former position, most recently before this, was heading the task force to um, examine uh, police misconduct under Rom's administration, and right. she's been a federal prosecutor and a corporate lawyer before that. So, you know, that's one of the things that was interesting. She's not some um, left or, you know, some activist coming in and saying these things. She comes from a, a lot, literally a law enforcement background. Where does she come out on the, uh, the uh, state's attorney, Fox? She has said that the letting go of uh, Jesse Smollett has to be reassessed. Is that right? Yeah, that is a really strange story that I'm curious to see what comes of that. So Yeah, yeah but I mean, double really jeopardy. I mean, once they're that. found innocent, they can't be brought back. Yeah, but they're going they're putting pressure on Kim Fox who let him go. She's yeah, a but district how, attorney. Yeah, but what find new charges? You can't. Well, they're going to get Kim Fox. That's who they're after. Oh, there you go. Now, I find that ironic that the woman who wins the mayor's race is criticizing cops and going after cops for malfeasance or yeah. ethical issues and the chief police officer or police or enforcement officer is this Miss yeah, Fox, but, who's yeah. not really a police officer, but the you state's know, she, attorney. She's law law enforcement, right? And she's as crooked as it. <laughs> well, it sure looks that way. Yeah, a- amazing. So, um, what is it that you like most about uh, the reporting in Chicago? Is there any particular subject matter that's of <laughs> interest of you? Um, I mean, everything we've talked about just shows why it's so interesting. The politics are fascinating. I mean, the corruption's fascinating. The popular movements, the, um, you know, really the strength of the labor unions and the community organizations and the deep history and, you know, the way these groups often war. And um, it's just a fascinating place to watch. Um, well, I mean, from from yeah. what you described, uh, the, the civic activism could lead to a presidential uh, aspirations that actually come true. Exactly. Yep. It's amazing how well, someone out of happened. nowhere, like Barack Hussein Obama, just with the power structure that surrounded him in Chicago, can actually propel him. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about that, what well, what happened that's to Bill? Actually, not. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really wasn't part of everyone, including him, who makes it as part of the power structure to some degree. But he wasn't part of the power right. structure in the way that the people we've been talking about, most of them, um, 
just now just now are. He was not at all part of the power structure like someone like Ed Burke, which is actually what made his election even more yeah. interesting. Well, well, well weren't, they, weren't they really supporting his candidacy? What happened to Bill Daly? Um, you know, I think people just didn't feel like he was from Chicago. He hadn't uh, he hadn't been here much. He wasn't known on the streets here, and um, I, you know, people I don't think wanted to go back to the Daly dynasty. Right. And even though he was saying some of the same um, progressive things as the other candidates, I think he was seen as you know too much like the kind of one percent um, uh, reincarnation of Ron Emanuel that people right. really wanted to get rid of. Yeah, uh, what about what are people saying about the Smollett affair? It's just bizarre. I think everyone's. I mean, I think everyone's kind of sick of it for one thing, and and think it's getting too much. Has all along gotten too much attention, which was part of the problem to begin with. Um, you know, too much attention um, from the police. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's strange. I I, I think everyone thinks that more information is going to come out, but I think everyone thinks we also have more important things to deal with. Yeah, some of the allies of Tony Preckwinkle, like Congressman Bobby Rush, are take and some of the other uh, uh, allies of Preckwinkle and allies of Fox are are really taking shots at the Chicago Police Department and the Fraternal Order of Police. Where, how do you think that's going to turn out? Well, they've been. I mean, I think you mean over Smollett, but you know, the police problems with the police have been the big issue here for for many years, but especially for the past three years or so. So, I mean, criticizing the police is, is nothing new, and there's much bigger reasons to right. criticize them than, well, um, than over Smollett. I read that uh, in the West Side, a, a couple of police officers actually let go uh, of a uh, drug suspect that they were about to arrest because the neighbors all kind of uh, ganged up and started surrounding them, and they felt threatened. Is it, what do you see in that? Well, I mean, that, you know, there's, I, I, that could well be true. And, and since the Laquan McDonald um, right. killing, you know, the killing of the teen, the really high profile um, killing of that teenager by a, an officer, um, police have said, I mean, Ron Emanuel actually had a quote that they said they were going fetal and, you know, couldn't do their jobs right. because of the scrutiny. Um, so that's been a, I mean, that's been something that some police officers have been saying for a long time. And, um, I think that just goes back to, you know, the deep-seated problems with the police. If they can't handle some residents that are ganging up on them, why are they deputized to, you know, to carry guns and be responsible for protecting the city and be able to kill people? I think that just means there needs to be better training and, and better screening of, and just other reforms in the department. Do you think Lori will be up to that? Uh, I mean, she probably would be the best qualified of any of the candidates that were out there. It's a, obviously a hard job. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, it's. Uh, we'll see what happens. I think the the summer is off to a bad start with thirty people getting shot this weekend. Temperatures were up in the sixties. So. I, yeah. I, hope... I mean, I find based on your on your on your exchange with Ed, I find that uh, the same old same old continues to happen among us, the the common folk who are pretty much obey the law. There's some resistance to police officers defending the neighborhood with their weapons. Mm-hmm. Everything is an analysis on who got shot, who wasn't supposed to be shot. Well, who? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's it, a split second in Chicago, between. The, about four years ago, a, a young man, a young black man, was shot, but unwrongfully shot by a police officer 14 times, right. and that was hidden by Ram Emanuel until after the election. 
the video exactly. of that shooting yeah. was hidden. So that creates a lot of bad yeah, blood. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so that's so, a bad Yeah, so um, that's yeah, a bad once situation. you go into detail, you can understand how people lose it. And the audience is probably wondering yeah. what you were uh, talking about. You know, Carrie, this, uh, today I read an article in the, Wall- in the, in the Chicago Tribune. And it was by one of their, uh, uh, I forgot her name, but Darlene uh, Dalton or something, saying that in Chicago, there are a lot of African-American political leaders. You know, we had the the two uh, 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 candidates in the runoff for mayor were black. Uh, the state attorney general is black. The, uh, you know, other people, there are a lot of black politicians. But she said that it hasn't really helped the ordinary black folks on the south and west sides. And in fact, she said that they're moving out. They're moving to Atlanta. They're moving to Dallas. What do you make of that? Well, they're taking giant leaps out of Chicago. Well, not just you, the have suburbs. You know, <laughs> have you seen that? Well, yeah, the census numbers show that about 200,000 African Americans have left since 2000. And, I mean, that's, you know, not, uh, of course, there's, there's black elected officials. Um, I mean, there would have to be. You would hope there would have to be. That would be something deeply wrong if there weren't. Mm-hmm. But at least up until recently, they've been operating in the context of this democratic machine that, um, you know, I I think to really, really uh, oversimplify it, you know, did facilitate the um, election of people who weren't going to stand up to power and weren't going to speak out on um really say what needed to be said or, or work for what needed to be done on behalf of their constituents. So, you know, the black leaders have been really hobbled in a lot of ways by the larger power structure. And um, the mayor and is new and, and Kim Fox is relatively new. So, you know, I don't I mean, it'll be interesting to see if there's any changes now that the machine has really been weakened and there's a more independent city council, if, you know, people of all aldermen of, of all different races. Um, so I haven't read that column yet, but, I mean, there's no doubt that African-Americans are leaving the city and, and are, are suffering in the city. And I think that goes back to what I started with, which is just the disinvestment and the, the discrimination in the public and private sector, um, which has really gotten worse under the last administration and has been an issue for a long time under the Democratic machine. So you're saying that the Democratic machine itself it was not responsive to the black residents? Well, it, I mean, it created the city. You know, there's been a lot of attention on the polarization um, of the city under Rahm Emanuel, but, you know, he didn't he didn't create that from square one. And we've had the Democratic machine for however many decades, five or more before that, more than that. 1931. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Democratic machine was in power and, you know, got us to where, where we are now. What's, okay. ne- what's next for Rahm Emanuel? Does, uh, uh, is it obvious that he's going to be governor? No. Or is he done no, politically? I don't, think, I don't think anyone would go from being mayor of Chicago to being governor. That would be a thinkless. Uh, <laughs> so, in other words, yeah, uh, only know. because really everybody crazy. comes out of mm-hmm. being mayor burnt, or sort be- of. Yeah. kind of, sort of. Is Kim well, I Fox think mayor is a, a better job? Is Kim Fox prestigious job than governor of Illinois? <laughs> so, so you expect um, Kim Fox to keep her job? What's that? You think Kim Fox will keep her job as district attorney, or is there? A, I really don't know. I don't know what to make of this Jesse Smollett thing. I'm I'm curious to see too. Okay, well we'll keep in touch with you about that. What about uh, Governor Pritzker? He wants a progressive income tax, which Illinois has never had. Uh, what, is he going to get that? Um, I don't know. I mean, he has the you know he has the Democratic legislature, which was the standoff when Rauner was governor. Um, 
So uh, I suppose it's possible. It would be really interesting to see on, on that front and in general. Um, well, that'll, co- would, that'll cost the state a half that, a million that, residents. That will get more people leaving. <laughs> No, I don't know. Yeah, everybody. Okay, well, I... let me ask you one final question, maybe outside your uh, usual uh, uh, area. But have you familiar with the Obama political clubhouse that he's trying to build on 20 acres of historic green parkland on Jackson Park? Well, I, I don't know why it's called the political clubhouse, since every president has a presidential library and, uh, and museum. So it doesn't have a. Li- it doesn't have any books. It doesn't have any books. <laughs> Did you know that? I don't know how it's different, you know, why it would be characterized differently than any other president's library. Because um, it doesn't have any books. Well, and also uh, the uh, the deal um, to, to, to acquire that land was kind of... Uh, uh, corrupted in of itself. There's right. It's there, being they're being sued for that. Yeah, there's there's some serious details on how Jackson Park was acquired by two nonprofits, and it can't, it's yeah. You can't even sell these right. assets. There's a group well, called was, Friends of the Park that's soon. There still is a lot of opposition. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about this story is that um, Obama genuinely wants it to be a, a reflection and a, a you know an incubator for sort of community empowerment and um and a lot of those community members including in the local area um are either opposed to or have demands regarding the the library because of the the gentrification and the, the you know taking the land and the other effects it'll have on them so um i think that's one of the really interesting things that'll you know we'll see play out there is is how those two kind of, you know, the sort of the irony of um, of the goals for the the center, which, you know, I don't know if any other presidents um, even made that effort or former presidents even made that effort to um, have the library have this kind of uh, popular or, or empowering um, mission. And uh, and then the way it's, it's placement, I mean, I personally, I think there were other sites that would have been better, but um, how it's placement, you know, is sort of, causing discontent along from the very same people that it was supposedly um, supposed to empower and help. Well, considering how we began our our, uh, interview today, or just understanding what a struggle the South Side is, shouldn't it go on the South Side and be the impetus? (laughs) Well, deep South Side. I'm not parochial enough to know the difference between... We we support a site over in Englewood facing uh, Washington Park, not on Jackson Park. What do you think of that? Well, there, I mean, there was a number of sites, and personally, I thought this site on a, an abandoned steel mill property, um, even farther south, would have been yep. great because it was a beautiful site that wouldn't have had negative impacts on anyone. But, um, I mean, there's, you know, this is a really complicated process, and there were a lot of players, and, you know, maybe the University of Chicago had undue influence. I wouldn't doubt that. Um, but uh, there was pros and cons, I guess, for all the sites. When you say University of Chicago having undue influence, they wanted the steel yard, or they wanted it in Jackson no, no. Park. Where, yeah, where it is now. Um, and I'm not saying they did anything, you know, shady or illegal or anything. But I mean, it's just uh, they have a lot of clout in in Chicago, obviously. And um, there was, I mean, all these sites around in, in the. A number of sites around the country made their bid, and you know I know there was a really involved process to figure it out, and um, so we're at where we're at now. And like I said, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. 
Okay. Well, we we've had uh, a friend of ours is uh, is one of the lawyers on friend of the friends of the park that's suing because they don't want it in Jackson mm-hmm. Park. They're trying to protect right. the 20 acres of historic parkland. And in fact, I think uh, the Obama Library has to get an approval from the Secretary of the Interior. Uh, which is Mr. Trump will, will have a say in that. Well, at least it'll be delayed. It could yeah, easily be delayed six years. And then, uh, <laughs> and the other thing is, there are no books in this library. In fact, uh, it's not even the the National Archives is not even involved in it. So, uh, and also with respect to the community, there's no community benefits agreement, which developers often sign with the surrounding communities to assure them of jobs or whatever. So that's why there's so much. Co- uh, uh, you know, opposition to it. And in fact, one of the uh, not-for-profit foundations that gave uh, money to build, I don't know if you're familiar with the Logan Arts Center on the Midway Plaisance. It's a tall mm-hmm. building. And the Mr. and Mrs. Logan, they're dead now, but their foundation has just given $100,000 to Friend of the Parks to support their litigation. So I think people are starting to see that where they want it located in the middle of Jackson Park would be really disruptive and i think uh, you're don't be surprised if they start looking for other locations that are you know m- more uh, that are not as destructive to green parkland mm-hmm. yeah no i think that's that's probably all true and that's that's been part of the debate for a while so okay. um yeah we'll keep track of that and we'll we'll keep in touch and we'll call you back thank you very much right. for letting <laughs> us know good. thank you very much thank take care take care yeah so there you are She's an independent journalist reporting on what she sees. Yeah, it's it's very important that uh, she stays independent, which I find really hard in Chicago. Uh, Why isn't that that, um, only... Democrats get elected over and over and over again. Chicago uh, has has had a Democrat mayor since 1931. But how can you break this glass ceiling? Uh, you mean having Republicans? Just, I grew up in Chicago. I didn't even know any Republicans. I mean, uh, what percentage? It must be like 1%, 2% that are Republican? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, That's why the, the, the mayoral elections are no longer partisan. It's just like a jungle primary. Everybody runs in the top two. But you're going to tell me that you go into City Hall. Yeah. And there's 50 people there? 50 aldermen, not a single Republican, and five socialists. Wow. So it looks like a parliament. It looks... It's like yeah, a... no, the city council is 50 aldermen, and every alderman really controls uh, new construction, building, permits. Wow. So that, it's, just, it's just designed to be corrupt. Yes. And they won't, they won't uh, reduce it to like 15 and then just... No, have no, aldermen. They, they, all these people need jobs, you know. Otherwise, they'd be uh, criminals or something. Now, this is a way for them to be. So it know, really uh, is mafia gang. Yes, uh, yes, yes. The aldermen are just controlling blocks. Yes, they control their their ward, their hood. I, absolutely. <laughs> I was when I was uh, in my in my final quarter in college. I had finished all my schoolwork and I was waiting to graduate. And there was a a, a lady friend of my parents who was running as an independent Democrat against the regular organization, special election in the 48th Ward on the north side. And I worked as a ward captain for her as an independent. And we beat the regular <laughs> Democrats, and that was my introduction to poll watching. Unbelievable. 1978. But how does the city of Chicago not look into finding a more efficient way to legislate? They don't. We don't want to. That's just, there's a real People take pride in that they have some... Uh, pull at City Hall. So how big are these wards? Uh, 10 blocks, 15 blocks, what? 
I, I'm not sure. There's 2.7 million residents in the city. That's insane. So that's, that's not that much by more 50. Than, than ours. But in our city. Two, two, uh, divided mean, we, into com- 50. we complain when Dade County went to 15 members and get, can't get this anything is, done. This is 50. 50 is just it's never going to happen. Yep. Well, there you are. That's part of it. The problem. The other problem is that the public employee unions are very strong, and they really have a stranglehold on the city and on and the funding Chicago, the aldermen and on the Chicago public schools. The Chicago in 1970. No wonder uh, school choice doesn't stand a chance. It, well, now they're they're a strong charter school movement uh, by various organizations, but they have to be sponsored. Like the University of Chicago has five or six charter yeah, schools we have sponsorship that are very. Charter. Right, very successful, and there are others like that uh, on the north side. But uh, you know, in general, it's very hard. In 1970, I, gr- I was in eighth grade in a public school on the north side, and my eighth grade math teacher, homeroom math teacher, said that if my parents could afford it, they should send me to a private school. And she suggested a Jesuit school, and she was Jewish. She wasn't doing it for my religious education. But this, the, the public schools are just very disruptive. There's a lot of violence you know, especially boys, you'll get beaten up, uh, and it's you know it doesn't work. It's like I've said, sending your children to the Chicago government schools, as I call them, is like an act of child abuse because it's very yeah, hard. You're sending them to a prison colony, right. and you know there's a few magnet schools that are you know get draw from all over. Uh, like uh, Michelle Obama went to Whitney Young Magnet School, then she went to Princeton, where her brother had been one of the top basketball players in Princeton history. Uh, so you know the, some of the magnet schools are good. Uh, some there's some selective schools. There's there's technical schools that are actually very good, very selective. But the run of the mill schools, uh, high schools especially in middle schools, are just terrible. And my mother was a school teacher in the school where I went on the north side for 25 years, and uh, it's a tough place. It's it, you know the 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 unions are always striking. They they have their own interests which is different from the interests of the children and the parents. Yeah, that's one thing we should have listened to FDR. What's that? Not, not allow government public, unions. Yeah, government unions. Because access. it's and, union and employees. LaGuardia, Fiorello LaGuardia was the same in Chicago. He wanted to deliver government service, and he knew he couldn't let those government workers unionize because then they're unionizing against taxpayers. Against, Who they themselves are taxpayers. Right, but they don't care because they're earning more from their jobs than they're paying in taxes. So and sometimes they earn more striking than they do They working. do that, and so they use strikes as a as a you know bargaining mechanism. Now, LaGuardia, you said Chicago. It's New York, correct? Same thing. So LaGuardia was in New York. And he had uh, New York is is like very similar to Chicago in that it's really uh, controlled by the public employees. That was the big achievement that Giuliani did because Giuliani did not get any support from the public employee unions. He ran in 89 and he lost to David Dinkins, who was totally owned by the unions. And then he ran again and people were so fed up with Dinkins and what a terrible job he had done. So Giuliani and then Bloomberg for 20 years were independent of the government unions. And that's part of why they were able to make such great improvements in New York. In policing, uh, there's a big charter school movement in New York, which I think is bigger than what you have in No, in de Blasio Chicago. closing them down. De Blasio is going against them. Uh, you know, and, and our, our reporter was saying, oh, the charter, you know, more money, putting more money into unionized government bureaucracies is not the way to get better results. Well, she seemed to believe that. Yeah, but she's a progressive, independent journalist. That's fine. We we have uh, here at the Concrete Conservative, we listen to uh, reporting yeah, we, from we're, all sides. We're about learning. Absolutely. Now, one thing I uh, 
I've got to remind you mm-hmm. is that when I ask these questions, I'm only thinking about the audience. Okay. And if I think that some of the issues are vague because you are an attorney and attorneys oh, assume that us right. laymen can't keep up with you, yeah, I have to remind you all okay. the time there's an audience out there that wants to know details of what you're talking about. If I don't get you to talk about no, details, fine. the audience... But- just yeah. switches the, channels. The real problem is that a lot of families are leaving Chicago because of this, because they can't get good schools. They're so dangerous, especially African-American families are moving because they're not getting good service from the city. And uh, actually, she's right. The, Chicago is not two cities. It's three cities. along From downtown, along the lakefront, it's San Francisco. It's a yuppie, very, very uh, safe, generally. Then in the south and west sides, it's Detroit. And then on the southwest and northwest sides, it's Queens, bungalows. Wow. My sister lives in Queens on the north side in a bungalow. And now, so a bungalow three, meaning what? It's it's a uh, small uh, single-family house, but it's very modest. and uh, it, it's uh, They're up against each other? Zero yeah, they're lot? right up against. There's a small walkway between them, but very small. And they're all kind of uh, cookie-cutter. So there's nothing fancy about them, but they're very nice and they're they're safe neighborhoods. And they're probably expensive as hell. No, no, not not so expensive, depending on where they're located. Uh, like Mayor Ram Emanuel lives in one of those and uh, in a very nice neighborhood, and he sends his kids to the South Side, uh, the, the University of Chicago Lab School, which is a private school for the faculty and then for whoever can pay outrageous tuition. So uh, that's that's the the way Chicago was broken down in the three cities. And you know, what's amazing is that the behavior of the wards mm-hmm. are very similar to the to the boroughs in New York, sure, right? Absolutely, and yet, but they're smaller. The wards are smaller. Of course, you said two point three million. That's there's no excuse for fifty all the divided by fifty, right? Wow. Well, well New York that I, is I corrupt. New York, could, New York by, could use. I would say one of the things that could help New York is to break down New York City and make five different cities independent of each other. You know, Staten Island. Brooklyn, let Brooklyn go back to being a city. Queens, the Bronx, and then Manhattan. Why did Bo- uh, Brooklyn become? Uh, In 1998, Brooklyn needed money. No, they needed money for infrastructure. A lot of people were moving in, and the big thing then was streetcars. That's why the Dodgers were called Dodgers. The Brooklyn were called Dodgers because they were dodging streetcars. So in 1998, the, they sold them. They they merged into New York City, which had a lot of money. From all the business, all the shipping that went through, all the manufacturing that was in Manhattan. So they, in effect, bought Brooklyn, bought out Brooklyn, and then funded a lot of the construction, especially streetcars, the elevated trains in Brooklyn, because Brooklyn was growing. Uh, Staten Island was also part of, became part of New York City. Uh, The Bronx was just an empty uh, land area that was uh, settled by uh, Manhattan, grabbed by Manhattan, and made part of Manhattan. And then Queens was a, a county that was annexed, and they did all this because uh, Manhattan really, con- in many cases, in those cases especially, controlled the legislature, and the upstate New Yorkers didn't really object. So Manhattan is now like eight million. Uh, New York City is eight million residents, uh, and it's and it's a huge bureaucracy. It's like a state. It's like a city. It's like as big as uh, Sweden, and has as big a welfare state as Sweden. Absolutely. So yeah, someone said the other day at a Trump event. Oh, it was our governor. Governor DeSantis right. says that Florida's budget is smaller than New York's than budget. Than New York City's, New York City's budget. budget. Absolutely. New York State and uh, the city New York New York State has spends twice as much 
as the state of Florida. Wow. And and we have the same number of residents. And then in addition to New York Illegals State. Illegals and all well, the other things addition, we have. <laughs> well, New York State not only spends a lot of money, but inside New York State, there's this sub-state called New York City of 8 million plus people that spends even more. So it's a, it's a very expensive place. And Yeah. Uh, last time I was in New York, I was in the financial district. And I um, I really enjoyed, I got a, got to do a bucket list. Uh, uh, Go to Francis Tavern? Uh, no, to get on, on a bike sure. and just and just ride bike from one yep. northwest, east, west, north, the whole night. And I stopped at everything I could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. And I uh, had my phone on, I had a selfie stick, and I really enjoyed the hell out sure. of New York. I, I must have drove from 9 p.m. to about 4 in the morning. Mm-hmm. I just never stopped, and I didn't yep. even. I just let my mind make a left and make a yep. right turn. Yep. There was yep. no design to it, and I was fascinated. You were bicycling all over the whole time. Oh, that's great! On that's probably those, the best way to do it. You and know? I did it on one of those uh, Citibank bikes. See, oh my God! And then I would park, yep. get something to eat, put another quarter in another station, grab another bike. Well, that's it's a great city for that. I mean, in, and um, it was nice and cold, so I yep. I burned so, through like yep. four or yep. five cigars. <laughs> oh, you were smoking cigars where you were? And selfieing and videotaping. I'm surprised they didn't arrest you for smoking cigars. Where yeah, were you smoking I guess, cigars? On the, on the bike? On the or? moving, yeah. So it was moving. That's great. All right. Well, you must have scared a lot of people riding your bikes while smoking a cigar. Well, and I dodged cops, and I would hear like, hey, hey, hey. And, you know, I, yep. I had well, a My big... two kids are living there, and they're working there. That's, that's a I was in place. My, I was also in a, in a fantastic black uh, Navy-issued trench coat. Uh, I was totally, I was on the ball. There you I really go. enjoyed, it. and I think I would um, one day consider owning real estate in Manhattan just for just to go to shows. A pied a terre, you know, they have a special tax coming up for people who buy pied a terres. Oh, meaning that we're not permanent. Well, right, you're not permanent, but so they're going to zap. Oh, you they're going to zap me. Yeah. Well, there goes that idea. Well, you know, Rush Limbaugh used to live in Manhattan for his show, and he moved down to West Palm Beach, and now he's very careful every time he goes there because. You want to stay, you know. You want to be able to document that you're not living there, if you've ever had any connections. So, yeah, wow, it's that's uh, a real pain in the butt. It's, it's a yes, it is pain in the pocket. Yes, in the pocket. Right. And uh, now else. I now can I now move on before the next call? Sure. Is, uh, what, uh, call? Can you give me permission, sir? Go ahead. Uh, do I go to the well or do I go to the jury box or do I go to the witness stand? Whatever you want, witness stand. The go witness ahead. stand. Okay, there's a gentleman by the name of John Swinton, chief editor of the New York Times in 1880. And I find this quote fascinating. It was so fascinating that I put it in a chapter of my book of what happens when you seek the press in order to advance your cause, and it sabotages Mm -hmm. your cause and undermines you entirely. So I put uh, this in the chapter about school that I really desired to get the word out. I end up on the front page of the Miami Herald— and it was just Slaughterhouse Five. All they did was butcher me, fake news me, and I'm so happy that Trump has been able to uh, create this narrative nationally because the fake news has got to stop. It's undermining the country. But when you read this quote, you realize, oh my God, nothing's changed. This person said this in 1890. New York Times editor, he says, there is no such thing in America as an independent press unless it is in the country town. You know it, and I know it. There's not one of you who dares write this honest opinion. And if you do, you know beforehand that it will never appear in print. 
I am paid $150 a week for keeping an honest opinion out of the paper. <laughs> Especially if I'm con connected with it. Others of you are paid similar salaries for similar things. And any of you who would be so foolish as to write the honest opinions would be out on the streets looking for another job. The business of New York's journalists is to destroy the truth, to lie outright, to pervert, to vilify, to fawn at the feet of mammon, and to sell his race and his country for his daily bread. You know this, and I know it. And what folly is this to be toasting to an independent press? We are the tools and vassals of rich men behind the scenes. We are jumping jacks. They pull the strings and we dance. Our talents, our possibilities, and our lives are the property of other men. We are intellectual prostitutes. Did he really say that? Wow. Well, that he the that only way sums to, it up. The only way to battle that is with alternative points of view. And that's what we're seeing arising here in America. I mean, for, for a long time during the twentieth century, the progressive New Deal, Great Society liberal point of view prevailed in many respects. But I think now you're seeing a challenge. And but obviously, from what this gentleman is saying, it prevailed on a lie. Well, no, it, that's right. But but there were other, other things going on in the 1890s. But what, what I'm talking about is the progressive New Deal, great society that prevailed from, you know, That smells like a robber baron type. Right. That was a robber baron era. Yeah. But we have the same thing now. And so what's happened, though, is that since, at least I would say since the Reagan... Revolution I almost want to read it again. Yeah. <laughs> well, since the Reagan Revolution, there's been the start of an alternative to that uh, progressive New Deal, great society, uh, you know, mainstream uh, view. And so in 1986 or so, or 87, the, uh, uh, the requirement that the news present both sides was dropped. So for, that's when uh, Rush Limbaugh got started. And so talk radio is a very strong today conservative alternative to the mainstream media. In the 90s, Rupert Murdoch, who was a very ambitious uh, newspaper man in, in Australia, he came to America and he saw that the mainstream media, the New York Times and the Washington Post, had were ignoring half the audience, half their market. They were ignoring it, or, or worse, they were making fun of it. Mm -hmm. And so he came in. He started Fox News, and it's been very successful. And you know they beat consistently the mainstream uh, cable channels, CNN and MSNBC. And then he bought the New York, the Wall Street Journal, which is the center uh, centrist alternative to the New York Times and the Washington Post. So what he did was he found that half the market in America was how come not he being hasn't bought, how, how come he hasn't bought the Washington Times? Those are, small, those are small newspapers, the Washington Times, the Washington Examiner. I think those have a good future, especially the Examiner. The Examiner is, is growing, potentially. But it does. Uh, Donkey Moon, what's his name? Uh, I don't know who owns those two. Th yeah, uh, South Korean guy. Yeah, it could um, be. But anyway, you don't need a lot of news newspapers. There's a lot of new Well, print media is out the window anyway. You don't, right. So you, you just need a good site. Like, for example, Breitbart has become very strongly established. Uh, Drudge Report. Matt Drudge is is living in a yeah, in but a he's condo. not a newspaper. He no, just, but he's a he's, very strong. But come on, he's just putting up links. No, no, but he is a very strong, very, uh, very. Uh, and he's from Miami. My, he's uh, down on Brickell Avenue in a condo with a couple of buddies, just uh, and some. Uh, and he hangs low. He hangs low. 
the 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 by far the strongest um, legal website and you know is is uh, Instapundit, which is run by Glenn Reynolds from the University of Tennessee and he, uh, law school, and that is by far the strongest of the legal industry uh, commentators. There's all their Volokh conspiracy from UCLA. Legal insurrection from Cornell. Uh, some. But what do you think there. about the Intercept? Do you find that to be legit? Or is... I don't. I haven't. I haven't run into the Intercept. But there's a lot of uh, uh, conservative and libertarian websites that are alternatives to the mainstream media. The problem is with the mainstream media is that they're they're losing their jobs because they're not catering. They're not responding to half the audience, at least. And well, not, and, and their audience doesn't really read. Well, ninety percent of the mainstream media journalists are. Progressive socialist activists—they're not skeptical, like oh, agnostic. Oh, and they're not see. curious. They're, no, they—they they want to sell their political message, and that's very consistent. Last night, I watched Lara Logan on the. Um, oh man, she on, used to be so good looking. Oh well, she was on Mark Levin on Fox News, and, and he noticed was, he didn't say he didn't let he didn't say a word. Right, all, he he <laughs> just let her talk. Let her go. She'll man. be. They'll be on in uh, seven p.m. next Saturday. On Fox News, and they really, you know, she laid out that the the mainstream media is not interested in any one kind of objectivity or showing both sides. Well, I think she phrased they want to it sell uh, their message. Yeah, she she uh, basically said that it was a business model. Right, the business model was to be a propaganda machine. It's uh, like what I was saying during the Cold War. Which we're in a, in a, a cold civil Democrats war. were never afraid of Russians back right. then. They were friends of Russians, in fact. Uh, Ted Kennedy in 1983 well, went to Russia to try to say, oh, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll work together to bring down it, President Reagan. Who did he, right? he, no, he also, uh, when, his, when his brother was elected, he went and looked uh, uh, with, right before oh, back the— Back in the 60s? Yeah, right before the inauguration— he brought uh, Brezhnev's uh, um, foreign minister to speak to— Could be. So who do I have the pleasure to speak Carl with? Denninger should be calling us next. Welcome to the Concrete Conservative, WSQF 94.5. This is Mac and Ed Vidal. Who do I have the pleasure to speak with? This is Carl Denninger calling in for the hit at uh, 5 after the hour. Well, you're, you are incredibly punctual— Ed would be very proud of you. Me, I'm always late, you know. I'm more Cuban than Ed when it comes to that. Thank you, Carl. (laughs) You know, I was born here, and he was born there, but he's always on time, and I'm always late. I'm a Calvinist Cuban. (laughs) Calvinist Cuban. Ben Franklin is my hero, you know. It's funny, I told that to Ted Cruz once on a tarmac. Hey, remember, we're Cuban, and I realized, wait a minute, you're running for president. I'm calling. (laughs) It's on YouTube. But, Carl, we we had a a very good progressive independent journalist from Chicago, and I found out that you grew up in Chicago. Is that, do you still follow any of the politics there? Uh, Well, I didn't grow up there. I ran an internet company there. Okay. Uh, I lived there for 13 years and ran an internet company in the city during the 1990s. And have you followed what's uh, the politics? What What are your views on Chicago politics? Well, it was a cesspool then, and it's 100 times worse now. I, I can't imagine, <laughs> I mean, from a business perspective, I can't imagine why anybody in their right mind would have anything to do with that town. Well, the, the worst is yet to come, because the new governor is pushing for a progressive income tax which you'll probably get because the Democrats control both houses, and I oh, think they'll, yeah they'll, they'll get it and, and they'll be uh, I mean it's just like you know and then he'll, then he'll be whining like Cuomo you know well gee you know I, I I did all these things and all the rich people pulled up their roots and left 
Not just rich um, people, but no you kidding? know. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, do you believe? Do you have? Are you the belief that uh, that the alderman system is is the root cause for the corruption? I mean, fifty aldermen to run a city seems pretty ludicrous of two million people. I don't know that the alderman system is the root of it. You know, at the end of the day, you can structure a representative government in a lot of different ways. The the problem that you always seem to run into, and we've got it on a national level too, is that it becomes very lucrative to find ways to bribe people, whether it be, you know, through hard bribes with real $100 bills and envelopes, or whether it be through various forms of soft bribery. And over time, this makes for real trouble because, as, as we have right now going on on a national scale, we've taken health care from 3 to 4% of our economy to 20 um, At the same time, we have a retirement health care system called Medicare that was designed and funded for 3 to 4% of GDP. It's 80% underfunded now because of this 500% escalation. And within the next six years, it's going to go bankrupt. And so, I'm, and yet, the only way to fix that would be to increase the tax rate by 500%. Well, that's not going to happen. So what is the alternative? Um, you know, and you've got everybody and their brother in Washington, D.C. They conflate Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security together and call it entitlements. Uh, Social Security is not the problem. Medicare is the problem, and Medicaid is a completely welfare-based system because there's no tax base that right. pays for that. And in between those two, it's going to bankrupt the nation. So, you know, you, you have the same thing going on though at the state level. Uh, the, the house that I used to own, I've tracked a little bit. I, I had a place in Deerfield, mm -hmm. and the property taxes there since I sold it in 2000 are more than doubled. It's now over $20,000 a year. Right. Are you saying it's because a lot of New Yorkers moved to Deerfield? No, no, no. Deerfield is in Illinois. <laughs> no, I'm saying that it's all, if you look at where the tax money is going, it's all going to, to health care and pension costs, right. essentially. Pe that's where, that's where yeah. the escalation has all come from. People who are no and, longer serving the citizens. Bankru it bankrupts everybody. It's bankrupting the states. It's bankrupting the localities. And it's going to bankrupt the federal government. Now, um, and you don't believe Social Security uh, plays a role in this at all? Social Security is, is currently running approximately a 14% cash deficit against the FICA taxes that are received. You could lift the, uh, the tax rate from 6.2 to just under 7. You could raise the cap of about 14% or thereabouts. Uh, you could get rid of the fraud in the Social Security disability system. Approximately half the people that are receiving it are not actually disabled. Mm -hmm. uh, or some combination of all three of those things, and the system would be solvent. Wow. In another 15 to 20 years, the first wave of the baby boomers that are getting Social Security now are going to start dying uh, in, in sizable volume. And so this, the system was designed to build assets during times when there were a lot of babies and to spend those assets when there were fewer babies. It's, there's, there's nothing wrong with the fundamental design of the Social Security system. The, the problem is on the Medicare side, which right now is unfunded. Uh, it's, it's only funded at about 26% of what it's spending. So three out of four dollars that go out are not being paid for by taxes coming in. That's crazy. Well, I'm planning to start counting on... Uh 
Medicare in three years. So what do you think I should do? Well, if, if you actually need medical care, uh, you're going to die. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, um, what about the the, uh, the negative aspects of Social Security where uh, studies have shown that the that people's savings completely diminished with the thought, the false narrative. Yeah, they, they, narrative. they rely on the government. Yeah, that it. they're going to retire on Social Security. People stop saving, and you can see that in the credit card default number, which is in the trillions. Don't you think Social Security had a, a negative effect on just the general mentality of the laborer? Well, I think I think you've got to look at the, the, the total cost of living problem. I mean, the, the, the debt ramp that we've had in this country didn't start with Social Security. It, it became a serious problem after the manipulations that were done in the 1970s in an attempt to control cost-push inflation. And instead of actually dealing with the underlying issues, uh, you know, wage and price controls ended up shifting uh, salaries into what amounted to defined benefit plans. So this is where health insurance got locked in with your with your job, mm-hmm. and and the result of that is that you've decoupled people from having to actually pay for something, and at the same time you've removed the ability of people to get a price. So if I don't have to compete and I can collude. Then you add the the corruption that I you know talked about repeatedly, uh, and so now you have the hospitals, for example, colluding together. They won't give you a price, uh, and something that should cost you five thousand dollars costs you thirty. Uh, you know you, you get bit by a scorpion, you get a sting, and the anti venom is a hundred dollars a vial in Mexico. They charge you twenty grand a vial for it, a hundred miles north in Arizona. Uh, yeah, that's and disgusting. How do they do this well because they can. Yeah, there's no price list. It's the only industry in the United States that doesn't have a price list. Yeah, no, I'm, it's illegal. The, the problem is, is that under 100-year-old law, all of this stuff that they're doing is a felony. And yet there has and, and the drug and medical industry has twice gone all the way to the Supreme Court trying to get the you know their conduct declared exempt under McCarran-Ferguson, which is a law that regulates insurance. They lost both cases. And so the idea that somehow this can't be prosecuted, that, you know, that they have some kind of, it's just total nonsense. The truth is that nobody will do anything about this, including our current president. And the reason they won't is because if you do it, you know, we, we added almost 40,000 people a year, a month, last month, in employment, in health care. Nine out of ten of them never provide a single second of care to a single person. You collapse any of this, and every one of those people gets fired tomorrow. Wow. Yeah, that's that's some serious clarity there. Now, what about yeah, the— that's, Well, that's what's going on. I mean, and, and you know, but at the, at the rate, at the exponential growth rate that has been happening over the last, you know, 30, 40 years— and it, I, I, by the way, I put this out— Back in, in the 1990s, when I was running my company, I told people to work for me. We, we had our own point meetings once a year. We went over costs and benefits and everything, so everyone could see what was going on. And, of course, you can't use individual numbers because that's illegal. But you can put up averages. And I said, look, at the rate this is going, somewhere around 2030-ish, this whole thing's going to collapse because the government's not going to be able to pay for it. And the money's going to be gone. And, you know, okay, gee, man, I was st- <laughs> looks like I was off by about five years. That's not so bad for a 30-year forward projection. <laughs> now, your your website, uh, tell the audience what your website and what your business actually did for people. Well, 
the, the website today is market-ticker.org. What's that again? Market-ticker.org. Okay. And uh, I, I am not in the business of doing anything except uh, providing commentary and calling it as I see it these days. Oh, fantastic. Now, here's an idea for you that um, I wrote a book, uh, a simplistic, uh, complicated book. How about that? If that can possibly be it. So I'm not a, an expert in any of the uh, ideas that I uh, share with uh, with my readers, but I do ask for them to consider the reinvention of the United States as opposed to reforming it. So uh, in the medical industry, uh, tell me who I'm copying without realizing. I believe that if there could be a legal way to separate catastrophic care emergency care and just basic care by law and separate these two so that uh, you become members of hospitals as opposed to insurance companies. You leave insurance companies to fund it however they wish, protect the integrity of the insurance the insurance pool. But uh, in order to get that price list, you would see it only in your hospital when you would sign up to be a member of that particular hospital. In your neighborhood. So naturally, you're going to pick the one closest to you, but at the same time, it would force other hospitals to compete for the upper income or the affluent or the upper middle class, however the market would define it. But you'd go into the hospital for the common cold, for the broken arm, for stitches, for the fever, uh, and the, the same, dog bite in your case. Uh, yeah, the dog bite in my case. Uh, but at the same time, the hospital will perform the operations. But just it wouldn't be part of a membership plan. It would be doctors signing up with a hospital under whatever contracts the market would bear. So the doctors would solicit where they're going to be operating from. And therefore, that relationship would also have a price list, but because you broke it down. And then, of course, the catastrophic care is a, is a big apple that perhaps Howard Schultz the other night uh, has probably the best idea, which is the government can just take over the... The cancer, the leukemia, the muscular, the big, the big, the, uh, the big yeah. catastrophic stuff, okay. where you become unproductive, and therefore you can't possibly pay for that stuff anyway because you know. No, 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 no. that's no, that's that's just flat out nuts and wrong. Okay. Do you mean the ca- the catastrophic care or all three ideas? Well, I I think what you're what you're proposing is probably unworkable, and the simple reason is. That you can't restrict information when it gets once it gets out, and it will. Um, and furthermore, I want competition to drive the good people to make more money and the poor ones to go out of business, because that's you know. Look at now when you say good people. When you say good people, just just give you one small example. There's a place called the Surgery Center of Oklahoma that that literally does. I mean, that's what they do is surgeries. Okay, you could go on their webpage. You can look up what, uh, you know, this particular procedure is going to cost, and that's what it is. There's no insurance. It's soup to nuts. You pay cash. That's it. Now, the interesting thing about this is, because it's a fixed price, if they screw up and give you an infection in the hospital, they eat it. Well, that's very cool. That's a very natural. Because there are a lot of hospital infections. Now, guess what happens? First off, the procedure is a fifth of the price of the average cost of the same procedure anywhere else in the country. That's the first thing that happens. The second one is their infection rate is a tenth 
of most other major hospitals. Okay, so but and, that doesn't and, that and the reason for this and the reason for this is very simple. If they if they give it to you because they've already charged you and this is how much it's going to cost, they've got to pay for it. Yes, that's uh, uh, private sector coercion. Yeah, and that, you know, gee, it's funny how that works, isn't it? You know, if I if you hire me to come fix your roof and I drop my ladder through your window, I got to pay for the window. Okay. Yes. In the medical system, if you go into the hospital and they give you a, a, a hospital-acquired infection, you get billed for it. That's insane. Yeah, I, you're right? right on the money. Well, and that, but that's what goes on. The other thing is this. All right, so so I have a, a very comprehensive plan that's up on the website. It's it's called the Bill to Fix Healthcare for All. It's on the right hand side. It's it's one of the sticky topics. And and essentially, what it proposes is this. Everyone must publish a price in healthcare. Everyone must pay the same price. Okay? So those are the first two things. Just like Walmart, just like the gas station. You would never tolerate you paying two fifty a gallon for gas and the other guy pays five, and the only difference is which car insurance company you use. <laughs> okay? Yeah. If, if they tried to do it, somebody would go to jail, and if nobody went to jail, someone would burn the place down in an hour. But at the same right. time, the gas stations, why sh why can't they be five cents a difference or ten cents difference? Well, they can. Well, they can. And, and, and by the way, there's nothing that says that the hospital can't publish a price list that says if you show up at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's 50% more expensive. Yeah, it's like okay. asking the AC guy to come out on a Saturday at 3 in the morning. He's going to yeah, hit. You know, if, if I got a plugged up drain and I call the plumber and say, hey, I really need you to come out right now. It's it's 1130 at night. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to like that, right? But that's my choice. And it's, it, all right, so we start there, all right? Secondly, we fix this drug company problem that we have with drugs. We pay the R&D for every drug that's developed in the world. And everybody else in the world gets to use it for free. I don't know who thought that was an intelligent idea, and it's not a legal one either, but there's a solution to that, which is that anything that's properly labeled, I, <laughs> have at it. We want to bring it back in the United States and sell it. You go right ahead and do it. If from an international and foreign trade perspective, the law that needs to be passed is simple. The United States gets most favored nation status on drug pricing, period, end of discussion, or you lose all patent and other protection for that drug in the United States. Yeah, that's pretty simple. I like that a lot. <laughs> that's real easy. And guess what? What that means is our prices, you know, it's Savaldi. Okay, it was a great example of this. It's a cure for hepatitis C, a disease that kills people over time, destroys their liver, and ultimately kills them. It is an actual cure. It's not a management tool. It's not like cancer that, you know, doesn't, it doesn't really cure you. It just makes things better. This is an actual cure. When it first came out, it was $80,000 about $1,000 a pill, 90-day course of treatment. You can get in a plane, fly to India, and that same pill, the 90-day course of treatment's 900 bucks. Unbelievable. So okay. it really is the so, FDA. Well, it's not just the FDA. It's the government in general. Congress, if, if I get in a plane and I fly to India and I fill my suitcase full of Sovaldi, <laughs> Okay, take an empty suitcase with me. Yeah, you're going to jail. Plane, I, I get arrested when I get off the plane on the other end. I go to jail. Yeah, now you're a drug trafficker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, now, 
or to, you know, I go to jail. Excuse me, what, how long would this price disparity last if I could get on a plane going? About 15 minutes because somebody would go do that, right? And arbitrage would take care of the problem for you. So you've got that. We get rid of this, we get rid of this crazy law that Ronald Reagan passed called Intala, E-M-T-A-L-A, which is the law that says that if you are an extremist, you're having a heart attack, whatever, the hospital must treat you whether they can collect or not. Now, Ian, and by the way, this applies even if you're not a U.S. citizen. Right. Yeah. That's where okay? they really, really get killed. Which is crazy. All right. That law needs to be repealed. It has to be scrapped. And we also need to scrap Medicaid completely. Throw it away. Tear it up. And people say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no wait. You can't do that to poor people. Um, I'm not going to do anything to poor people. If you show up in the hospital or in the doctor's office, you don't have any money, you don't have any insurance. And remember, everybody's paying the same price. The senior citizen pays the same price as the 15-year-old. It doesn't matter whether you're getting a car accident, you're walking your dog, same injury, same price, break your arm. If it's $1,000 to set your arm, it's $1,000, okay? If you can't pay the bill, whether it be by private insurance that you have bought on your own, you get the bill, you send it to them, they send you a check, Okay, or you you know you can pay cash, but let's say you can't do either. The hospital sends the bill to the Treasury Department. Treasury Department now has a tax lien on you. You have ninety days to pay it. If you can't, it's a tax lien. If you manage to get through your entire life and you die, and you have an estate, the government will take it from there. If not, well, guess what? Uncle Sam eats it. But that's what we do now. Okay. The difference is Uncle Sam eats a very small amount of money because the price of everything has come down by 80%. And an awful lot of people, when they die, they do have something in their estate so they can pay some of it or maybe even all of it. Yeah, that makes, now, that makes absolute sense. Now, you can go buy catastrophic insurance now, okay, if you want to, under this system. If you want to have it, that's fine. You don't have to buy it, but you can. But here's the, here's the rub on that. Since the price of care has been collapsed by 80%, you could buy a cap policy for less than you pay for car insurance for the entire year. The average reasonably healthy adult would spend a couple hundred dollars a year on that policy. If you were already sick and you had something, but again, you're paying for your chronic whatever in cash, or it's being assigned back to the government, uh, your risk of a heart attack is higher, but it's not 100%, but it's higher. So you may pay five or $600 a year for this cap policy. But what you wouldn't be paying is the seven or $800 a month for a worthless Obamacare policy that has a $5,000 deductible. Yeah, I've that's, read, that's yeah, me. That is ridiculous, yeah. My dog bike right, cost me $2,800. Well, look, look at what's going on right now, okay? I'm, I am essentially... I, I have a history of being able to make mid-six-figure incomes. I did it when I was running my internet company. I won't work anymore. I won't do it. And the reason is this. I'm 55. If I make $25,000 a year, my decent health insurance policy from Obamacare costs me about $15 a month. If I make $40,000 a year, I don't get to keep any of it because that insurance... That subsidy is completely gone, and that policy is almost 900 bucks. Yeah, which is what I pay now. Well, guess what? I'm healthy. 
what, what am I what am I paying eight thousand dollars, nine thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars a year for? Nothing. Zero. So in other words, you, really you stay yeah, poor, I, so you don't I have to buy insurance. Have what, what, what about, okay, so in my case, I, I have uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, so I have a pretty expensive uh, uh, prescription, Humira, that I have to take right. every two weeks. So that's a different situation then. Not really. Why is the Humira so darn expensive? How much does Humira cost in India or in uh, in, a in Europe? In Europe, it could, it's a lot cheaper, and there are competitors. Here, we only have AbV to supply it almost. Okay, yeah. so fix, so fix, like, like I said, one of the prongs of this is solve the drug importation problem. Mm. Now, since I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm kind of that kind of a guy, all right? Yep. I'm going to go get on a plane, I'm going to fly. I'll come back with a suitcase full of stuff, and I'm going to sell to you a fifth of what they're charging you now for it. Right. Now, you can probably pay for that, right? Sure. Okay, well, then what do you need the insurance for? Yep. It's cheaper than the insurance. Absolutely. You just buy the drug. Yeah, right. now, before, they, uh, the liberals love to say that you would go broke because of catastrophic yeah. injury. Nobody should go broke because they got sick. Now you go broke because you have an insurance policy. Yeah, there was this myth <laughs> that Elizabeth Warren was pushing that American families were going filing for bankruptcy because of medical expenses. But now they're yeah, filing for bankruptcy the because the of their insurance is, policy. It's not legitimate medical expenses. It, you know, if you allow people to form monopolies, and all of this has been illegal for over 100 years, go read 15 United States Code Chapter 1. What, the Sherman Act? You find it online. It's easy. The Sherman Sher Antitrust Act. Act. Right. Sherman, Clayton, Robinson, Patman, okay, those three yep. together are the, are the core of antitrust law in the United States. It does not say anything other than an attempt to monopolize or restrain trade. That's the predicate act. You do those things, it's a felony. It's 10 years in the can. <laughs> and yet the insurance industry has been doing it for 100 years now. And so has the medical business. And, right. by, and as I said, they took two cases all the way to the Supreme Court. And lost. Arguing that they had exemptions, they lost both times. Hmm. So the uh, so one of them was Royal Drug, and the other one was Maricopa County. Well, Carl, uh, I've got the dates yeah. on it. It's the late seventies, early eighties. Carl, there's not going to be any change in legislation under this Congress, but I think the Trumpster is has promised that the Republicans can become the health care party, but he's not going to do anything until the next Congress. What do you think? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Like the Trumpster had three points in his in his campaign platform that essentially said he was going to break the medical monopolies and he was going to stop the scam in the pharmaceutical industry. Those, the, the, there were three specific bullet points, so that's what they added up to. And he, on, the day of, on the night of the election, literally on the night of the election, I was sitting with a bunch of libertarian friends of mine outside, just outside Pensacola drinking beer watching the, the returns come in. Yep. I had my laptop with me. Within five minutes of the election being called for him, Mm -hmm. All three of those points disappeared off of his campaign site and have never been seen again. Uh oh, <laughs> that's fantastic! If you think this man, if you think this man is going to do anything about this, you have oh. rocks in your head. Okay, so he doesn't want to dismantle Obamacare at all. Are you kidding me? He was. You know what? Neither does the Republican Party. Oh no, I oh, know that. The we Republican know Party. that. We know. Yeah, we know that. Okay, so here's the thing. You say that you say that there's there's nothing he could have done without Congress. Well, let me ask you this. 
Um, could, his, could his attorney general have indicted uh, Merck? No, sure. no, that not Sessions. He doesn't do anything. He didn't do anything. Oh, but it, but he could have. But he could have told Jeff Sessions. Um, by the way, because Jeff Sessions works for him, right? Right. He's his boss. Not anymore, obviously, but he yep. was. Yep, yep. He could have said, "Do this or get out." Sessions might have said, "I, I quit." Okay, next guy, do this or get out. <laughs> right. Where is this Mr. Part of the Deal that's going to solve these problems? Yep, no, I hear you. Well, I... You don't I, need new laws. The laws are already there. They've been there for over 100 years. You mean and the executive he, enforces them. He has every... He not only has the right to do that, he has the obligation under the Constitution to do Right. Faithfully enforce the laws. Yep. He took an oath. Absolutely. And he's done exactly the opposite. Well, we we have uh, insurance through my wife's employment, and uh, in three years, I guess we're going to go on Medicare. So we'll see what we do. And in, and in 2024, if you need medical care, uh, have a passport. Okay. Go to Costa Rica? Uh, go go anywhere where they have, I mean, get on a plane, go to India, go to Japan. You know, you can have, here's, you want to know something that's really disgusting? What's that? You can get uh, you can get on a plane and fly to Narita in Japan. Right. Have an MRI done there for a hundred dollars. Wow. You can actually literally get on a plane, fly to Narita, and fly back for less than it costs to have that scan done here in the United States. And it's amazing that no matter what, uh, you know, an MRI costs whatever it costs. Why does uh, a richer person get charged higher for an MRI than a poorer person? If you have insurance, they know that. Well, so that's, you know the last. If, if you did this, if you said black people pay 20% more for their gasoline, you'd be in jail. You definitely would be accused of being racist, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you'd be arrested, okay? And, and, and if you tried it in the city of Chicago, they'd probably burn the business down. Yep. You know, what? what is it with people in this country that think that there is something appropriate if the two of, if two of you get wheeled into the hospital at the same time having a heart attack, yeah, and, you and both the, pay the same bill. Wait, wait, wait. Yep. Say that again. Both yep. in the same bill. You you get billed according to your ability to pay. So if you have yeah, uh, the guy the guy with a better insurance pays more for the same heart attack yep. as the guy next to him who's got credit insurance. Or that no insurance. But, you know what? But, but is it the same heart? If it's the same heart attack, why, if if it costs five thousand dollars to fix a heart attack, um, why isn't it five thousand dollars? Yeah, well, of course, yeah. the insurance com- uh, the doctors and yeah. insurance company said it's yeah. more complicated Carl, heart attack. Carl, this goes back to World War II when the government imposed uh, wage and price controls and uh, employers needed to attract workers, so they offered uh, medical care as an attraction, and then after the war it became part of, uh, you know, you got tax credits for for offering that to your employees, and the employees didn't have to pay tax on it. So it's a case of where the government distorted the market for wages, and then employers reacted, but they couldn't raise wages, so they offered medical benefits, and right. that became part of the tax code. Well, and, and and then Nixon doubled down on it when he did the same thing in the 1970s. Yep, yep, he did okay, that. Okay, so here's a real doozy of a question that I've had this uh, conversation. I'd like to see what would happen to the health care uh, 
industry if if there was a law passed making deductibles illegal? Making deductibles what? I'm sorry. In other words, for the Are actuaries, illegal. Yeah, so that, that the that, actual that doesn't solve anything because the the, the problem. At the end of the day, the problem is this: if I can if I can screw one person in favor of another, then I'm going to find ways to conspire with other people to do that. Uh, you look at the you look at the history of what's happened with these physicians networks that have have been bought out by hospitals, right? And their billing rates go up astronomically after that happens. I uh, mean, for the doctor, or for the buyer, the hospital. No, for, for the patient. For the patient. Yeah. Oh, the, okay, so I'm missing something here. All right. All right, so, all right, so let's say that I'm a, I'm a physician and I have a private office here in town, and the local hospital comes and, and essentially forces me to take a buyout and become an employee of the hospital. And the way they do this is they say, we're going to refer all of our business to the guy across the street unless you do this. Okay? Right. So essentially, they're going to destroy my business, which, by the way, is illegal. Right. But nobody goes to jail. Right. And so I take the deal, because otherwise I don't have a business at all. And then what happens to the customer? And you're not a patient. You're a customer. You're buying a service from somebody. All right? Right. What happens to the customer? The price doubles. And, and there's nowhere and else to go. Or there are fewer because places. You know what? If there was no coercion, if there was no scam, somebody else, another doctor would open an office next door. Okay, but uh, uh, give me more reasons why we couldn't get rid of the deductible by law. Because if you did that, it wouldn't do anything for cost. All it would do is drive the insurance rate up. In other words, because the actuaries felt, can't uh, computate that without a deductible? Well, of course they can, but the, but the premium's going to go up. Yeah, the premium so go up. You can say no deductibles, but then instead of $800 a month, it's 950 And is there is it a mathematical reality, or is it just hypothetical uh, No, it's real. Greed. No, no, it's, greed. Just, it's just math. There's this much money. Well, you have to understand, insurance is a regulated business, okay? Yep. Insurance companies are allowed to make approximately 10%. The only way for an insurance company to get bigger and make more money is to charge more for whatever it is that they're insuring. So the insurance company says they want to reduce car accidents. The truth is they want more expensive car accidents. <laughs> right. That's well That's said. That's true, yeah. Okay? The, the same thing with the health insurance company. The health insurance company, the only way that they can get bigger and make more money is to have more expensive things go wrong with people. Right. So in other words, that, uh, the, that you're really uh, allowing a lot of the conspiracy theorists who are listening our, to our show right now uh, giving credence to uh, the, the cure for cancer exists and nobody know, and nobody wants to talk about it. Well, I don't know if there's a cure for cancer or not, but what I do know is that if I'm an insurance company, you'd want to make 10% of $100,000 or I want to make 10% of $10 million. So in other words, you let cancer run free, you don't cure it. Well, I, no. I do whatever. I, I mean, look, I love if if I'm in a, if I'm a health insurance company, I love the four hundred thousand dollar drugs, whether they work or not. If they work, that's fine. But I really don't care if they work. All I care is that they cost four hundred grand, and that somebody pays it. Yeah, because because I get to spread that out among all the people and make everyone pay. Yep. Knowing that uh, uh, um, the grass, the, the the vast majority of well, people don't ever get sick. Let, let me ask. Let me switch gears here to Medicaid. Uh, I've read that Medicaid actually doesn't uh, have a positive effect on the people that it, it treats. It's 
it's really very poor service. What and it's gotten very expensive. It was subsidized by Obamacare, and it's a big, big burden for most of the states. What do you make of Medicaid? That, that's true, and there's some other really ugly things in Medicaid too. There's one that is just starting to bite people that I warned about at the time the bill was passed. It was one of the few people actually read it between when it was released and when it was passed the next day. I yep. stay up all night. Yep. Um, and that is that many states have gone to what they call a capitation system. In other words, they take all the money they spend on Medicaid and they allocate you whatever your percentage is of the total, whether right. you use it or not. Okay? Okay. So based on, based on the state's population. States, mm-hmm. so, so if you're on Medicaid and you're in one of those states, that, that amount is typically somewhere between seven and $900 a person per month, depending on what state you're in. Okay? Now, here's the problem. That, that normally wouldn't matter to you because it's a pure entitlement, right? It's, it's you know, it's welfare, basically. It's, well, it's welfare health care. And the service is indeed rather poor. It's got a limited selection of doctors. There's a whole separate set of pay tables, which are lower than Medicare's and lower than private insurance. And so doctors don't like it. But if you don't take it, you can't take any of those government programs. So in most areas, there are some physicians that will take it because they want to take the other ones. The problem, however, is this. In the law, if you are 55, mm-hmm. during that 10-year period between before you can get Medicare at 65, if you are on Medicaid, when you die, the amount of the services you used under Medicaid is a claim against your estate. Whoa. But you shouldn't have an estate if you're on Medicaid. Well... <laughs> You know what? You'd think not, but what happens if, you know, when you're after you get to be 65 or so, you, you do something useful with your life? Uh-oh. Uh, all gone, boys and girls. And oh, by the way, even if you are completely healthy and never set foot in a doctor's office, you're, if you're in one of those capitated states, you get screwed. Hmm. And people are starting to get burned by this now. It's a huge amount of money. You're, you're talking about, in many cases, close to $100,000. It's a lien on your estate. It's a lien on your estate, and it's required to be recovered by law. Hmm. Yeah, so, so but, but, you know, but now but someone's going to say that, oh, I got an alcoholic dad, and he abused me as a, as a, a father. He's also an alcoholic. And on top of that, I don't get to have an estate because he owes so-and-so millions of dollars, and therefore when the house sells, (laughs) none of us, on top of being abused by this freakazoid father of ours, we don't even get the proceeds of the house. So who cares, right? Well, and and you know what? That's fine if that's the situation because, you know what, you use the medical care and, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's rather unjust to let you keep what you used, right? Yeah. So, in other words, the emotions go out the window. That's not the problem. The problem is if you're in a capitated state and you're healthy, the bill's there even if you never saw a physician. Hmm. Well, uh, say that again for the audience because I'm not understanding. let's Let's assume you're on Medicaid because you're poor. Okay. But you're healthy. Okay. You never go to the doctor. Correct. Nothing goes wrong with you for 10 years. Or string it out longer for your yeah, whole life. Yeah, because once you go, once 
you're 65, you're on Medicare, and it stops. Okay? okay. So this window's 10, 10 years in length. Right. All right? So you're on Medicaid for the 10 years. You've never seen a physician. Mm-hmm. But every single month, you've been racking up $700 plus of lien against your estate. $8,500 a year for 10 right. years, 85 grand. Yep, that adds up. Now, you die. You never used a single second of care from the government during that 10-year period. Not a penny. And the state comes after your estate for $85,000, and they'll get it. All right. Well, then what about Medicare? That's 65, and that's not a... Uh, a, a need-based, uh, it's for everyone, right? Well, it, yes and no. There's a, there's a, yes, it's for everyone. No, it's not need-based. However, there is a sliding premium scale based on income. Okay. It's capped off, and it's below, it's, in any event, it's below actual expense cost. It's, it's below actuarial. But then again, the reason for that is that the system was designed when healthcare was three and a half, four percent of GDP. Now it's twenty. Right. And right. you and you blame that on, directly on Obamacare. No, I blame that directly on both sides of the aisle. Obamacare yeah. was passed by the Democrats and Obama because in two thousand eight, when the market blew up and everything else blew up, the U.S. healthcare system was on the verge of collapse. Nobody wanted to talk about it. The debt that was out there in the hospitals and the clinics and the, and the pharmaceutical companies was all threatened, just like every other form of debt was. It was all going to default, and the world was going to literally come to an end for the U.S. medical system. Instead of fixing the fraud and the felony, they rammed Obamacare down everyone's throat. It was written by the insurance industry yep. Yep, as that's a way to sure. prevent them from being bankrupted. And that was what was about to happen. Now, the fact that Obama ran on that in his campaign, he predicted that coming, or he was going to run that way anyway? Well, he was going to do it anyway, but, yeah. there, but it was, this was not a surprise that this was coming. This wasn't something that all of a sudden magically showed up when the housing market blew up. Yeah, this has been going on. I mean, I you know I I saw this coming back in the 1990s when I was running my internet company. This was something that was has been well known by anyone that's been paying attention for 25 years. Yeah. So you concentrated on healthcare um, in your entire career, or were you involved? In, I mean, what got you so involved in analyzing healthcare? Well, you were a healthcare well, professional. Well, no, I, I was involved in it because I was running a company and it was threatening to bankrupt my business. Mm. Oh, what? really? So your knowledge of healthcare. Is, is What it, kind of company were you running? I was running an internet firm in Chicago in the 1990s. What did you guys do on the internet? We were one of the original sellers of service, both to businesses and to consumers, much like America Online. Ah, okay. That's pretty good. Yeah, and, it was, and we were seeing double-digit annual increases in our health care premium costs for our right. employees. So all this information that you've shared with us is simply because you were affected by it in your pocketbook. Yep. As an owner yeah, no, of we, were, we were getting rammed badly by this every single year. That's pretty wow. amazing. So the audience, uh, you heard that. This person, uh, Carl, uh, learned this much about health care simply because he was being screwed by it. He, yeah, he yeah. was running a business. This whole time I thought it. that you were a health care consultant and, or a lobbyist or something of that nature. And it turns out you were just a, a small businessman who was running a very large business who was getting screwed by the health care system. That's pretty incredible. Yeah we, yeah, we had about 
three dozen employees, and we, we were getting reamed like you wouldn't believe. Well, let me ask you a related question then. You, were, uh, you ran an Internet company in the 90s. How do you compare the IPOs of the 90s, 20 years ago, 1999, with the uh, Internet IPOs of today? Uh, that, that was a huge yeah. one. Yeah, let me know. Well, I'll, I'll give you my quickie on it, which is that the, they were simply claiming that they were going to make sales that didn't exist then. Right. Now there is not a single business model I can find among any of these these so-called unicorn companies, you know, the Ubers and the Airbnbs yeah. and you know, Lyft and those guys. Um, that it does not have as its core fraud. <laughs> a, it, it's it, well, it's a scam. It's a ripoff. Right. Okay. You take Uber for example. The person that drives for Uber has has the set of requirements for their vehicle set by the company. Yep. The price they charge for the service is set by the company. <laughs> the, <laughs> the costs are. All on them. Oh, right. yeah, it's, everything's on the driver. It's amazing. Everything's on the driver, and yet, although everything's on the driver, um, the all of the other side of it is, uh, you know, is on is on the firm. So if the driver goes broke because he can't make any money, the company doesn't lose anything. Right. Okay, and yet the company gets the benefit of. All of the equity that the driver builds for them. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Would you, love, would you love to have that deal? Yeah, it's well, it's uh, it's unreal, and uh, the liability is also on the driver as well if he yeah, wrecks. Insurance and all that. Well, absolutely, and not only that, but most here's the thing: the really nasty part of this is that most personal car insurance is void. If you are using the vehicle commercially. Right. Okay? So unless you buy commercial insurance, now there are commercial policies, but they're considerably more expensive. And if you don't have one of those, uh, you have no coverage. So what do you think is happening? Do you think most Uber drivers are just going with their personal coverage? Yeah, and I, and, well, and the other problem, though, is that, I mean, if you think about the injustice here, Uber the company gets a piece off the top, they get all of the equity value that you build for them as a driver. They get none of the liability. That's, you get none of that. You you get none of the benefit from this. Why don't you get, you know, one ten-thousandth or one one millionth or, you know, whatever your share is of their, their, why don't you own that part? And the answer is, and and, oh, by the way, you're not an employee either. At least if you were an employee, you got unemployment compensation. You got no, no. These are all 1099s. Right. You're it, not. You're an independent contractor. Right. I, this is, it, it's an insane. Well, do you believe, going back to insurance, you believe there's going to be a nasty car accident that gets that gets Lyft and Uber sued, and all this goes, uh, goes to the courts, and we'll find out that the driver, indeed, um... Uh, doesn't get clipped for the full wad of the lawsuit that Uber ends up having to pay for somebody's paralysis. Hasn't happened. Hasn't happened yet. It's already happened. Uber, Uber and Lyft both carry corporate liability. Okay, and in 
they can always get tagged as, as with what's called successor liability in the law for the acts of the people that you know that work under their banner, okay, whether they're employees or not. Uh, it's a very difficult case to win if you're a plaintiff, but it can happen. So I mean, there's that's already there to to a substantial degree. That risk is there for them, but the individual driver who's involved in that gets ruined. I uh, think about the situation if you if you drive for a taxi company and there's an accident, you as a taxi driver are not the one that, that gets clipped on that. The, the yellow cab company does. Yes. Okay. And and here's now is are there exceptions? Sure. If you're a taxi driver and you're drunk, different story. All right. Then or you're speeding. You're end up with personal, well, then you get personal liability. But but for the most part, that kind of situation doesn't come up in this kind of a way. And look at look at situations like Airbnb. Okay, the only reason Airbnb exists is because the people who are renting out those houses and those rooms are not complying with the laws that apply to public rooming houses. Sprinklers, fire inspections, regulations and requirements, taxes, zoning requirements, all these things that are there if you wanted to open up a little hotel. And none of that stuff is being paid for, again, if you as an Airbnb host get tagged on any of this stuff, it's your problem that the company gets all the equity value from you taking all of the risk. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So they're pretty much all these yeah, but all these companies are based are, are based on a fraud. They, they they drive and they host uh, guests. Yeah, it's a natural supply and demand. Uh, that un- the underlying reason why these companies exist and are breaking these laws. It's, it's, it's like, again, market force. There really is a need for these type of services now. Yep. I mean, I've used yeah. Uber, and I'm a total beneficiary. I don't yeah. care how much it costs me, but I love being picked up by an Uber. I don't even want to drive anymore. Oh, yeah, no, it's a day. Look, I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't, a, you know, there isn't some benefit there. The problem is that when you allow people to put business models like this together, uh, you look at Lyft. Lyft just went public. Has never made a penny in profit. Right. Has no reasonable business plan that says it ever will. Okay, there's nothing in their S one that says this is how we're actually going to become profitable and earn a profit over time. There's nothing in the actual offering prospect that says that. In fact, the disclaimer says we may never be able to figure that out. Right. <laughs> if they raise, if they raise prices enough to be profitable, do they stay in business? Yeah, both Uber have to. Both of those companies have to ask that question. It's cheaper than a yellow cab. No, and it's really gross. A yellow cab is disgusting to sit in. Well, I understand that, but but again, if they had to if they had to double their prices, would you still use them? No, I'm not so sure because they do pick you up at your house. They're quick as shit. Oops, no. ship. The quickest ship. I forgot we were on the radio. <laughs> They're quick as ship. Uh, now, uh, yeah, and to some degree. Uh, uh, get, uh, asking for a taxi takes uh, half an hour, 40 minutes to have a taxi yeah. show up at your house. An Uber shows up in three to eight minutes. And I live... Oh, I know. It, 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 might, it might work, it might not. I'm just saying that the business model is unproven. I mean, I wouldn't do it if it was double, that's for sure. At, at a price point that actually is profitable, I'm not sure they have a company. Right. Okay, now, for uh, uh, as a final question... Uh, what do you think about uh, going back to insurance? 
why hasn't uh, you uh, mentioned, you know, life savings accounts, health savings accounts? Is there something you don't like about health savings account in order to drive down the, the health care costs, or do you think it just wouldn't? Well, I don't think they drive down anything, but I, but I do believe that if we were to take, for example, if you look at the, the proposal that I have up on my webpage that I, I wrote quite some time ago, and in fact, I wrote a book called Leverage, where part of the, the solutions section of it dealt with health care, um, and, and what's up on the web is a refinement of that. Uh, it is manifestly unjust to allow a business to pay for an employee's health care with untaxed money. And yet you have to pay for health care after you've paid Social Security, Medicare, and income taxes on it. That's a very okay. legitimate argument. That's insane. And so... The appropriate remedy for that is to allow 100% deductibility, including from self-employment taxes, for health care expenses for individuals or remove the deduction from businesses. Now, I don't care which way you do it, but the tax treatment needs to be the same because what you have, any time that you build those kinds of distortions into the tax code, you give people a reason to form monopolies and cheat. And that's part of what's driven this over the years is that, you know, we, we started, like you mentioned, you know, World War II, and then Nixon doubled down on it. And we've ended up with a monstrosity. It's turned into to Frankenstein. And it, to give you an idea how bad it's gotten in some places, Michigan, in the state of Michigan, they have a no-fault insurance law. I lived there when it was passed. They passed it to stop the lawsuit lottery. So if you get in an auto accident in Michigan, your insurance company pays for your medical expenses. The other guy pays for his. If you don't have insurance, too bad, so sad. You can't sue the other guy. There are exceptions for ridiculous things like being intoxicated, okay? But for an ordinary accident, that's the way it is. Now, when this was originally passed, auto insurance went up a little bit, but not very much, all right? And simply because there were people that got health care when they had auto accidents and didn't get it before, and somebody, you know, that's got to get paid for, right? All right. It did not take long for the medical industry to figure out how to screw people using this and screw every single motorist in Michigan. If you get in a car wreck today and you need an MRI on your neck, that MRI will be billed at three to five times what the same MRI would be billed at if you got the same injury walking your dog. That's disgusting. That's such a racket, man. You know, because state of Florida has no fault as well, and that never but, dawned on me. But it's, but it's not. No, but wait a minute. State of Florida's is not unlimited. PIP is only, you know, $10,000. Okay? Michigan's is unlimited. Wow. Yeah, because I was involved in an accident where the driver was PIP, so I had to shoot my own insurance company, even though I wasn't in my car or driving, and right. and they had to they had to end up they end up crushing me in court. My own insurance company. I fell from a pickup truck at 12 miles an hour. I asked uh, at the time. I I didn't think I'd ever pretty much do anything uh, physically. I thought I was having trouble just going to the bathroom. So I asked for a million bucks. I got thirty three thousand dollars. <laughs> 
And my own yeah. insurance company yeah. clubbed me to death because I was living with my folks at the time. So they made me look like I had a silver spoon and I was always going to be taken care of. Yeah, well, this is, but, you know, I mean, the, the, what's happened in Michigan, just to put a little, put some numbers on this, <clears> okay? <throat> the average driver in Detroit pays $5,000 a year for car insurance. Unbelievable. That's but savage. How many of them have the insurance? That's the average. That's incredible. How the hell can you drive? How many drive? uninsured drivers are there in Detroit? About half. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable, man. I mean, government just sucks. They got nothing. But, but, but you know what? It's not that. Why didn't? The, why hasn't the Michigan Attorney General sued every single hospital and doctor in the state under antitrust law? Well, uh, why do you include the doctor in that? Because they initiate the, the the theft, or they don't you see that they have like no choice, or no? Well, what do you mean they have no choice? Uh, you, the doctor bills me a thousand dollars for something that he charges somebody else two hundred bucks for. He has no choice but to charge me a thousand dollars. Well, isn't That's it what? isn't it isn't it mandated by how much the insurance will absorb or willing to pay for that same procedure, or is it an ethic? Well, wait a minute, is it mandated, or did he just choose to do that? Because he could get it. Where's the, where's the mandate? Where's the where's the legal requirement that he screw me? Well, not really screwing you, but screwing the insurance company that that, that has the. Oh, 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 wait a minute! Who who paid the five thousand dollar bill for the car insurance? I think I'm the one that got screwed. Oh, because over the length of time, they got they got that high. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's. But yeah, are you saying it's because? Esoterically, you yeah indeed paid the five thousand. Therefore, it's five thousand because of this this type of behavior. Or is it more because hey, this guy's got terrible insurance. I can only me as a doctor, I can only charge two hundred for this. But if Mister Rich guy walks through the door, I can charge twelve hundred for this. Now you're fine. You're saying that's very unethical, and I agree. But isn't it also the real culprit, the insurance company, not having to disclose a. Uh, uh, basically, well, they can't really establish the priceless, I guess. Or did you say that they could? No, no. The point, the point in Michigan is that it, the, the no fault. There, there is no crappy insurance versus good insurance. Your coverage is one hundred percent. And in that case, there's no deductible. That for for injuries. Oh, for injuries. Correct. Okay. Correct. So, so where where the problem comes in is that while you're getting screwed badly enough for just ordinary health care in Michigan, if you get in a car accident and get hurt, then you're taken care of. The problem is you're paying five grand a year for your car insurance. Yeah, that's... And if people don't understand, you know, I mean, what's the difference down here? I've, I've got two cars on my policy, and, and you know, I pay under, under $1,000 a year. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and yet... For one car... That's the only benefit of being 55. (laughs) The only benefit of being 55 is the lower car insurance. You know, but, well, mine mine hasn't gone down, but I, you know, I've got a very good driving record. But the thing is, it doesn't do any good up there because if somebody hits you, okay, and you can't sue them, even though they were at fault, your insurance company has to cover your injuries. Yeah, so you have to, you're, you're obligated to have a good insurance and your... Whoever financed your car will also demand that you have a good insurance. 
Yeah, well, well, there is no good insurance or bad insurance. It's it's mandated by the state that the coverage is there. Yeah. So, anyway, that's that's what goes on. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank I, you, I, I Carl. Think I, we're gonna have to have you back on. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm I'm very impressed with your knowledge of of the medical industry, and you've and you've actually uh, taught our audience that there is a there is a cure for this. If they can understand it yeah. as you understand it. And I won't invest in any of these new IPOs. You're right. There is no business model in it, most of them. Well, then yeah, again, I, but I, wait a second. We also have Amazon that never drew a profit. It still hasn't. And look what it's done. Well, well now, now, let me just take 30 seconds and, and clarify that one a little bit. Um, Jeff Bezos got to be as big as he is by evading sales tax laws. Right. People think he was the brightest man in the world putting together his LLC structure with all those distribution centers. Uh, let me point out that I came up with that idea back in the 1990s and was told by my corporate attorneys that if I tried it, I'd go to prison and, for tax evasion. And when he was challenged by the states on exactly that basis, he folded. He did not take one of them to court and fight. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that tell you about whether or not he knew what he was doing was legal? Yeah, well, he knew it wasn't. He was just going as far as he could. Well, and here's but here's the point. Because he's a billionaire, they didn't prosecute him. If I tried the same thing, I would have gone to prison and been bankrupted. All right? Now, you tell me as a small business person how you compete in a world where a guy that's 100 times your size can do anything he wants and nothing happens. But if you try the same thing, you're going to get hammered. Well, wait a minute. He was at one time not a billionaire. So how do you how do you figure he got away with it long enough to become a billionaire? What did Amazon do to get away with it and not go to jail when he was a small kid? Well, he wasn't a small kid when he started doing this. He put right. those distribution centers in, and then what he told the states was that, well, I'm going to do this, and by the way, if you blank me off, uh, I'm going to shut it down, and, and I'm going to fire 1,500 people. Okay, so the- he, got away, he got away with that for several years. And then the states turned around and said, oh, uh, no, I don't think so. And, and he said, but I was right. I, you know, the law says I can do this. If he really believed that, he would have taken one of those guys, one of those states, any state, any of the 50, he would have taken them to court. He didn't do it. He didn't fight yep. any of them. He folded, and they collect tax now on, in all the states. But he still got his loophole. Because he doesn't charge tax on things that are sold through his marketplace. He handles half the transaction. He controls the transaction. But he doesn't collect tax. And that's Nexus. And, again, he's pulling the same game. And if I tried the same thing, I'd probably be under indictment right now. All right. Well, he's a smooth operator. He convinced his wife not to take him to the cleaner. So you got to hand it to the guy. All right. Thank well, you very much, right. Carl. I think his wife did all right. Thank yeah, you, Carl. Yeah. Th- we'll thank- get you back. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Very interesting. We have to thank John Lofgren for suggesting Carl Denninger as our our guest. Well, well that's face- the that's the the end of this show. Yep. We'll be uh, listening to um, Adam Levison soon. So stay stay free, my friends. This is the Concrete Conservative. Ed Vidal has been. Uh, Quite uh, subtle and and calm today, and he's actually allowed me to engage with our callers. (laughs) I'm learning. My wife is telling me to follow Mark Levin, let people talk.
let people talk and don't interrupt and also be very engaging mm. and humorous to keep people going because there's nothing like a good laugh. So learn that, folks. Listen more than you're talking, which means that, Ed, be quiet. Stay free. <laughs> Back in a moment with Statues and Story. This is WSUF 94.5. There's Adam. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.